Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Welcome to the Simply Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Hassoun. In this podcast, I'll be looking at three key questions related to fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I will break these down into information that is easy to understand and actionable so that you can apply it to your life today. This podcast will give you all you need to improve your health and well-being once and for all. So sit back, listen, and most importantly, take action. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today we're here with episode 21 and we are back on the normal structure as well with our three questions with the goal of simplifying them and giving you actionable takeaways. And where we get started today is our training question. So it is this, Elliot, I am not a morning person. How can I get up in the morning to train? So my first question to you will be, why do you want to train in the morning, right? This kind of falls into that same bracket of like the intermittent fasting, the keto, the 5 a.m. club, because of if it is on the rationale that everyone else is just ranting and raving about it, then it's worth considering, like, is it going to be worth doing for you? Like my second question would be like, how is your training in the evening, the afternoon, the mid-morning going for you currently? Because if it's going well is there really a need to change it? Potentially not. Um, So I would start with that caveat because most people will get caught up in what everyone else is doing. And, you know, even if they are ranting and raving about it, if you've got something that already works, it might not be worth changing it. However, if your like PM training or mid-morning training isn't working so much, potentially you're skipping sessions because you tend to be busy later in the day or you just want to experiment and you might think that you will get more effective sessions, you'll be more efficient and productive in your day, then let's dive into it. So the first thing to recognize, and I definitely experienced this myself, is that if you're not used to it, it's not going to be easy, right? So if you've become accustomed to, let's say a typical day already looks like waking up, getting ready, eating breakfast, commuting, you'll find that your body after some time will begin to do this on autopilot almost, right? And then if all of a sudden, you know, it goes from your easy morning of eating breakfast, not really doing anything very physical or cognitively taxing to you asking it to squat 70 kilos or to run 10K, it's safe to say that your body and your mind probably is going to be a little bit confused initially, right? So if you're keen on giving this a go, I would 100% give yourself at least 
two to three weeks of trying it as during that first week, your body is really just like adapting to what's going on, right? So both physically and mentally, like to perform well in exercise, our body needs to be in a sympathetic state, right? It needs to increase our heart rate, send blood to the working muscles. So there's a genuine physiological change that takes place. And for the most part, if we're just leisurely taking our time going to work, we're getting in a car, etc. We're probably going to be in more of a parasympathetic state, hopefully, right? So there's a physiological state that actually has to change. And then same goes through your AM routine, right? Before it was just very easy, easy cognitive tasks, right? You knew how to, you know, how to make breakfast, you know, how to get to work and everything like that. But now your mind is having to download all this data of being in the gym, seeing different people um, and having to actually concentrate. You know, if you're putting a heavy barbell on your back or running a certain distance at a certain pace, your mind has to get accustomed with that as well. So there's a lot of changes compared to when you were just getting up, getting your breakfast, going on your laptop. So firstly, expect it to be adjust and a bit of an adjustment and give yourself enough time. Yeah, you don't want to think after the first few workouts, this is horrendous and never go back. Just give yourself a few weeks to begin with. Next aspect here is like making it easy to get up in the morning in the first place, right? Because that's going to be the biggest barrier to it not happening. And this, as you know, it all starts the night before. And I've said it once and I will say it again. You cannot be part of the 5am club if you want to be part of the, you know, 11 p.m. club or the midnight crew too. Like you can't have the best of both worlds unless you're going to sacrifice sleep. And at some point you will probably begin to struggle, right? Either getting up in the morning or even performing in your sessions, right? It will make the transition so much harder. And if we do want to perform to the best of our ability during these sessions, we need adequate rest, good quantity and quality sleep. The way I would do this is determine what time you need to train first and then determine how much time you need to get yourself ready, which we'll go through in, in just a second. And then count back obviously around seven to eight hours to determine when you'll need to go to sleep. And then this is probably like, this is genuinely actually the most critical part because if you're tired and you know especially I, I talk about this all the time like it's not fun to just do day-to-day -day tasks when you're exhausted and you're just lacking sleep so you know if you're actually getting up to do something physical specifically if you're not a hundred percent like a big fan of exercise or training it's just not going to be that enjoyable and you're probably not going to uh, stick with it to completely honest and moving on, right, what we want to do now is make sure that transition is as easy as possible. So let's go back to what I just mentioned in terms of how much time you'll need between waking up and starting the session. And what we want to do is minimize this as much as possible, right? And I've touched on decision fatigue in past podcasts, and it's such a real thing, right? So if we want to minimize the mad decisions we want to make in the morning, you know, our bodies are going to be naturally inclined to take the path of least resistance, right? And if it's the option between prepping your bag, finding your keys, finding your water bottle, picking what you have to wear, um, making your coffee, or hitting the snooze button and going back to bed, I think snoozing is going to win, especially if you've not gotten, you know, a sufficient amount of sleep. Because of when you hear that alarm go in the morning, you know, your mind's immediately thinking of all the things you've got to do to actually get to the gym first, right? Because that's the biggest battle. Once you're there, you're probably going to train. You're probably going to actually do the exercise effectively. But getting there is, tends to be the hardest part when making this transition. So if you have the ability to make any decision in advance the night before, do it. It's really, really imperative. So 
Prep your gym bag. Determine what you're going to need, like your water bottle, your headphones, your supplementation. Lay out your clothes and have them in a really easy to access place, like including things like socks, you know, all those things that, you know, we will have to dig through the drawers for, especially if you're in a room with your partner and you don't want to wake them up. You've got to keep the room dark. Like you just don't want all those things. So literally place them in a place that's really easy to access. You don't have to interrupt everything. Like, you know, lay out your coffee, put the pod in the machine, you know, have, and this was a big one as well. Have your workout ready you know review what you're going to be training before so your mind can start thinking okay i'm going to be lifting 70 kilos on the squat today so you can start processing that so when you get there you're like okay i know i need to put this amount on the bar to warm up right so literally do every single thing you can to make the process as easy as possible. So let's um, come full circle here. So allowing yourself time to adjust is gonna be one of the most important things. So give yourself enough time. Getting to sleep on time and minimizing decision fatigue are gonna be crucial too. And I wanna go for a couple of quick hacks that you can add on to this as well. Next is to hydrate as soon as you get up, right? If we're gonna perform well, in our cognitive or physical tasks, we want to be adequately hydrated. And we've got to bear in mind that we shouldn't really be drinking that much water in the night. Hopefully we get unbroken sleep as well. So we've probably had about eight hours or 10 hours of not drinking too much. So we need to hydrate. The next I would say is an interesting one, which I'd probably opt for a fasted session. If you do want to have some type of food, Again, this if you're not used to this, this will take some time to adjust to, but I'm gonna favor fasted training. But if you, are, you do want something, then have something that's really easy to digest, you know, maybe like some quick sugars or something like that, like half a banana or something along those lines. Um, next one, my favorite tip, utilize caffeine. You know, it makes the process a lot easier. If I know that when I'm getting up in the morning, I'm gonna be having a coffee, then, you know, there's definitely more rationale to get out of bed. Next is gonna be have an enjoyable playlist, podcast or book ready to listen to. Make it an enjoyable process of getting up in the morning and be like, oh, this is the time that not only do I get to work out and exercise my body, but I get to listen to something that I enjoy. Like I've been putting on a upbeat song every morning when I make my bed and it's been a huge game changer actually because you're already kind of in you know getting into that good mood and it's not it's taking you out of your head for a second and starting the day on the right foot next one really big one allocate enough time so you're not rushing around like no one likes to rush around in the morning it doesn't matter what type of human you are that's something we've all probably got in common and then the next one here something I definitely need to work on jump out of bed as soon as your alarm goes off like don't give yourself the opportunity to do the uh, snooze button if you want if you need to and it's probably a good idea place your phone if you've got your alarm on there at the other side of the room so you genuinely have to leave the bed and that will help because once you're out it's not so bad but if you're under those nice warm sheets it's gonna be tough okay so finally if you do all these things and three weeks later you think nope you know this just isn't for me that's totally fine however like you may find the the prep side of things actually is really useful just to getting you to work on time a little bit more efficiently or getting you to your desk in your kitchen table a little bit more you know you might setting up your coffee before might just make your life a little bit easier and then the final thing i want to finish on here is that the key is that it's supposed to work for you and make your life easier so if it doesn't then just go and try something else maybe you just need to train a little bit earlier in a day maybe you need to try lunchtime just don't be tied to the idea but give it enough time to you know go through the initial resistance and try and just see what happens ultimately like i said it just needs to work for you so that's where we sum up the first training question and now i want to transition into a really interesting nutrition question right so elliot is fruit healthy 
This may seem like a bit of a strange question, right? I feel like most will respond and be like, duh, of course it's healthy, right? However, there will be others, like the person who asked this question and is confused because they understand carbs in excess can be problematic, right? And then they see that fruit is full of sugar. And then another person's gonna say, oh no, natural sugar, it's fine. And then the next person's gonna say, well, a calorie is a calorie. And then the next person say, a calorie is a calorie, but the way your body breaks down different sources of food isn't always the same. So you can see the back and forth and the conflict between the two and why it's actually not so black and white as we potentially first thought. And I wanna dive into the history of fruit and veg, which is actually gonna be really interesting for you guys if you've, if you've not come across this. And we're gonna go more specifically on fruit. So when you have finished listening to this or you know, you're just on a pause now, go to Google Images and search what did fruit and veg used to look like. And you're gonna be pretty mind blown to see that some of the crazy differences in what fruit looks like today compared to what it looked like. And I'll give you an example of uh, veg sauce here. So corn, like sweet corn for instance, that we know kind of comes on the cob, it's pretty big. It's now a thousand times larger, which is quite a long time ago, don't get me wrong, but 1000 times larger. And it was actually barely edible to begin with. And then bananas, they contained large, hard seeds and not those you know those really smooth and easy to eat things that we see today in our supermarkets and this one's a really fun one peaches you know kind of the same size of apples they were the size of cherries and then through genetic modifications selective breeding and all of that type of stuff we find the fruit and veg that sits in our supermarkets today right so with this in mind when we're referring to fruit and veg, especially the ones that our ancestors ate, it's nothing like what our fruit and veg looks like today. So I think that's always important to bear in mind. So I actually debunked some myths in the Simply Fit podcast holiday edition, which was episode 10 or 9, I believe, where I spoke about, you know, breakfast not being the most important meal of the day. Um, but that's not being blind, right? So I wanted to just bring this up because it's worth considering, like, what we are referring to and where does this original idea come from so fruit being healthy may have come from years ago when it looked a lot different to what it does today and what we've got to consider is that yes those fruit and veg probably had a lot more fiber and nutrients than we find in our fruit and veg today some wouldn't have some would have been barely edible but a lot of it would have been albeit the fruits that we find in our supermarkets today they're definitely going to have more nutrients than the processed foods that are sat on our shelves but it's still worth noting and i think the question is here is like when does it stop right a banana looks like how it does today and maybe a medium to large banana contains 25 to 30 grams But what if that doubles in the next 100 to 1,000 years, right? Let's say the next 100 years and it becomes a fruit with 60 grams of carbs, right? Do we still call it healthy when we're eating 60 grams of sugar in one sitting? So I want you to ponder that. And that's where I wanted to start and come back to the fact that fruit of today does contain nutrients, minerals, antioxidants, and an abundance too, comparatively to a lot of food that's out there. It's also a lot sweeter and a lot tastier than the likes of potentially kale and green beans. So if you're not a big veg fan not sure who's crazy enough not to like veg especially kale because i'm a really big fan it will ensure that you don't miss out on these nutrients because you can get them through fruit as well what about the sugar right of course we know that it's packed full of sugar so the majority of this of course is natural sugar and the fact that like fruit has a lot of fiber within it for the most part and water definitely makes it a better choice than you know traditional table sugar by the end of the day it is still sugar it will still create a biological response from your body insulin will need to be produced and the excess sugars will be stored if your body doesn't need the glycogen at that moment in time and this is where i feel we really need to focus today right there's no doubt 
that our bodies will process and assimilate whole foods differently than processed foods. And, you know, there is a cost to eating food, right? The calories it takes to chew the food, the calories it takes for the digestive system to assimilate the food, to make the enzymes, the digestive enzymes, etc. right? For example, when you've probably heard people saying that, you know, it costs more calories to eat celery than to actually the ones you're going to consume from the, the celery, right? So it's actually said that on average, 10% of our daily energy expenditure goes on consuming and digesting food. Interesting, right? The type of food, and I assume the amount as well, will definitely make this slightly vary, but roughly around 10%. And it's also one of the underrated reasons why protein is really excellent for fat loss. Like usually we're associating it with, you know, being highly satiating, really good for muscle building and preservation, which is absolutely true. But one of the most underrated reasons that protein is actually really good is it takes the most energy to break down and digest, which is roughly around 20 to 30%. So if you've just eaten 100 grams of protein, for instance, 100 calories worth of protein, I should say, it will cost around the body 20, 30 calories to break down this protein. So you're actually only going to getting a net of 70 to 80 calories, which is super interesting, right? And not something we consider. So it challenges the whole a calorie is a calorie argument, which I am not a proponent of, I appreciate it, but we also have to understand the differences in how our body is going to break down that food. And just an FYI here, this does not become an excuse to eat more protein or eat over the macros you have. It's important to understand this, but you don't want to go estimating your net calorie consumption. That is just going to make things super complicated. And I do want to dive a little bit deeper here. So stay with me. I hope you guys are finding this interesting because I found it fascinating as I was looking through it. And I actually heard a recent study done on cheese sandwiches. And yes, cheese sandwiches, bear with me. here. <laughs> uh, but this study explains it nicely, right? The study was specifically on postprandial energy expenditure in whole food and processed food meals and the implications for daily expenditure essentially which is a fancy way of saying that they looked at how much energy it took to digest a whole food cheese sandwich although you know cheese sandwich is a questionable choice i appreciate that versus a processed cheese sandwich and how many net calories did each of the participants get from the foods so i believe they did one experiment where the sandwiches amounted to about 600 calories so exactly the same amount of calories different like white breads and wholemeal bread and uh, I don't know the cheese you potentially get on the top of the burger versus actual cheddar cheese and then they did another when it was like 800 calories right and it turns out that eating the whole food sandwich took 46.8% more energy to digest on average than the processed cheese sandwich right? That's huge. The total energy needed to digest and absorb a whole food sandwich was 576 kilojoules. And the total amount it took to digest and assimilate the processed sandwich was 310 kilojoules. So I digress, but I just wanted to make sure that we saw the difference there. And then if we look at carbohydrates and the amount of energy expended whilst digesting those, it's actually about five to 10%. So it's not quite the same amount as the protein. So if we're eating a larger banana or eating dried fruit, you're still getting a pretty large portion of sugar, even if it is from a natural source and due to the small amounts of food volume from some of these fruits, it's very, very easy to overconsume them as well. So you might be getting 30 grams, 40 grams, 50 grams of sugar potentially. So to come full circle here, just like any healthy food, just because it's healthy and natural does not mean you can eat it endlessly, especially if you're relatively sedentary or you're not participating in exercise. So if you're thinking that grabbing a banana is the best way to start a day, 
you might want to think again on that front. And of course, it is going to be better than a latte and a croissant, but it's still X amount of carbs. And the next cl closing point that I want to make to ensure that we are very mindful here is that not all fruits are made equal. And I come back to the dried fruit example, right? So if we look at a tiny box of raisins, maybe 25, 30 grams of carbs, and we look at a whole punnet of strawberries, which is actually roughly around 20 grams of carbs, which do you think is going to keep you more satiated? So unless you're an athlete or you're exercising intensely, dried fruit or like the lower volume fruit is probably not the best option for you. So the final couple of points I want to close on here is that like if you do have a set of calories or macros that align with your goals, you are going to have a certain quota of carbohydrates. So you'll probably realize that utilizing, you know, those carbohydrates on a high amount of these low volume fruits probably isn't going to be the best course of action. You want to keep, you know, more voluminous fruit if you're going to have it like the strawberries and the raspberries and potentially watermelon and stuff like that that, they'll probably be a much better use of your calories and probably the place you want to stick to if you are in a calorie deficit. And the final closing point I want to make is that I don't know that many people who got overweight from eating fruit right? It's going to be the other things in your diet that are going to trip you up here. However, I have met a ton of people who are very much under the illusion that they can eat anything as long as it's healthy and not gain body fat. And they end up finding that their body composition isn't quite the way they want it to be. And it probably quite often comes down to overconsumption and an incorrect ratio in terms of the macros that they're consuming. So all in all, fruit is a definitely a very, very good source of carbohydrates. It's a very good uh, food source for nutrients, antioxidants, and everything along those lines, but it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all, and we just want to be mindful as always. So let's transition on to the last question, uh, which is quite an interesting one, and you've got to bear with me now if you are in a fat loss phase. So why do we need to gain weight? and increase calories after a fat loss phase. And the reason I say this is a bit more of a mindset question is down to the fact that a lot of people will have troubles with accepting that fat gain that comes. And I think this is a damn good question. And I've touched on briefly on Instagram a while back. I've not gone into depth on this. So this gives me a good opportunity to do so. So bear with me here. Like I said, a lot of you may be thinking, Elliot, I'm still trying to lose weight. Give me a break. You're already talking about me regaining weight, but I think it's worth understanding. And it'll, you know, have a listen here and then revisiting when you're at the end of your fat loss phase, it will be really valuable because you'll know what's to come next. So I want to start with why you will probably look at gaining some form of body fat at the end of your um, dieting process. So just for those who might not be aware, the vast majority of us will not be able to maintain our leanest body weight. So when you see the pictures of me at my photo shoot, you see people in their photo shoots, magazine covers, all of that, they're not walking like that uh, day to day. Like I've been on stage, I've done photo shoots, I've looked that good for maybe a day or a week, uh, but thereafter I've intentionally put back weight back on. And the reason being is that when you do get very lean, it's not always the healthiest place to be. Although you look super in shape and super healthy, it's not the greatest place for your body to be. So if we disregard the superficial reasons why we don't actually like body fat, right, there is a reason why it's on our bodies, right? It's actually really helpful for us surviving those cold winters years and years ago before central heating and, you know, really warm clothes existed. And perhaps it's the reason why humans are still roaming the earth. It also protects our organs, which is, you know, definitely pretty valuable. And it's a pretty good source of energy, especially if things are sparse on a food front. So there is a real biological reason why we need to hold some body fat. So try and get that into your heads for a second. Hard one to get your head around, I understand, but 
it's so important for us from a biological level. And let's go into part two of this, which is maintaining a very lean physique will often require you to keep your calories a lot lower. How low is too low will be different for every different individual. So I just want to put that caveat out there. Um, but we do know that we need a baseline amount of calories for our bodies to function and do the internal processes responsible for, right? It's called our basal metabolic rate. And it's the things that we take for granted, like our digestive system functioning, us being able to breathe and move and all that type of stuff. So what we've got to recognize is we also gain a lot of nutrients and minerals that are vital for our bodies and brains to function through calories. Whereas if we have minimal calories, we lessen our ability to gain these nutrients and minerals that are really, really valuable to helping out the body do the jobs that it's supposed to do. So this for over an extended period of time, and yes, an extended period of time is subjective once again, but it can lead to a whole host of issues, right? I've seen people run into issues with their hair, their skin, their mood, energy levels, their endocrine system, and I am speaking from experience here as well. And a lot of us know that vitamins like vitamin A, D, E, K, they're all fat soluble as well, right? Meaning we need a decent amount of dietary fat to actually, you know, assimilate and absorb these nutrients in the first place. And if we are on a low fat diet for a very long time, this is going to be troublesome. And the second point is the one that I want to specifically highlight today, because some people might not get to the end of their fat loss phase and be super, super lean, right? They might still be holding some body fat, which is completely fair enough for, you know, the day-to-day -day person. But they will be in a calorie deficit for an extended period of time, especially if they've got a decent amount of weight to lose. So let me give you an example where this is a very real phenomenon. Let's say someone is potentially 20 to 30 kilos overweight. So for the most part, they're looking maybe a year, if not more, to drop this amount of weight. And they might have to sit on a lower calorie total for like a pretty long time in order to achieve this, right? Albeit you can introduce diet breaks and everything like that, but they are gonna spend a fair amount of time in a calorie deficit and on a lower calorie amount than you know than their body would like to be on optimally. And then when they go to maintain this, or once they hit their goal, even if it's not shredded, but it is just thinner than they were, they may think that staying on low calories is the only way to maintain that. They don't know how to reverse diet or, you know, they might stop doing as much exercise and see low calories as the way to control their weight. So some people can end up spending years in this lower calorie position. And this is where going through reverse diet, bumping up calories and potentially, gain, potentially gaining a little bit of body fat would be really, really beneficial. Yet a lot of people won't find themselves in this position unless they've got a coach, they've got, they've got someone telling them and guiding them through that process. And most people won't go through this unless they've got a coach or someone who cares about their health and well-being guiding them through this. And I actually want to put out a little bit of a side note here and talk about the body fat set point. I think this will be a really interesting thing for you guys to listen to here. So to put it simply, the set point theory states that our bodies have a preset weight baseline, which is hardwired into our DNA. And I want to highlight the fact that I said theory. So <laughs> that's a really important caveat to me. And essentially the body will do everything it can to get to the place where it feels most healthy, essentially, right? So I also want to touch on the fact that most people assume that their set point is actually way higher than it actually is. And a lot of people may believe their set point is, you know, X amount of kilos where they feel they're still relatively overweight. And this is just due to the fact that their diet, their training, and potentially their lifestyle isn't optimal. So I want to put the theory aspect to the side for a second, because I feel like it might put some of us listeners at ease, especially if we are like, okay, why is my body always gravitating to this amount? So essentially, 
essentially what the body is doing is everything it can to get to this place where it feels at its best and it feels most healthy. And I'm going to give myself as a personal example here. I very comfortably hold 83 kilos. I could easily hold 80 to 79. It would take some effort. I would be considerably leaner. But if I'm honest, I don't really feel fully energized and healthy at that body weight. Once I get to that 82, 83 range, my energy levels are back in business. I seem to function like clockwork. Like, would I love to hold 79 kilos? Absolutely. But do I truly believe that even though it requires me to hold a little bit more body fat, I genuinely feel better and live a higher quality of life with those extra few kilos? 100%, right? I used to try and fight this and stay lean as well. Yeah, I could just feel within myself that once I started to increase my weight a little bit more, my physical health was on point, you know? It just got to a place where I felt a lot better. So if you're in a fat loss phase now, you can take this theory with a bit of a pinch of salt because if you can and you should push through this if it is in order to get your goal. I'm not saying in the future, but you can. And uh, this is another side note of this theory is that your body fat set point potentially can shift as well. Essentially, there is rationale to say that it wasn't your true set point before, but I digress. But if after like you go for a reverse diet, you your calories are you know in a subjectively good place for months on end it may be worth considering pushing up your weight and calories if you're not feeling 100 percent. one of the better things to do is getting some blood work to get some data and metrics behind this too however there are going to be some people who are genetically like 1000 percent fine with staying super lean i've seen this in people regularly as well so don't assume this is you until you truly experience this as you know actually saying oh my body fat set point higher can actually be a little bit of a cop-out. And I want to repeat this, right? Don't assume that you have a certain set point. Um, like it took me a long time to realize that this 80 kilo range was where I'm really comfortable at or X amount of kilos above my leanest because this will change, especially if you gain more muscle down the years as well. Um, and I don't want anyone to be using this as a cop-out because it can be. So something that popped to my mind as I was hypothesizing about this is it's probably the reason why some people reach a sticking point and most of us do. And I intentionally didn't use the word plateau here where they really have to grind through at certain points of their fat loss journey to get to their goal, right? So we've got to remember that at the end of the day, your body does not care about you having abs on the beach. All it cares about is that it has enough energy to function and do all the things that it needs to do. So with that in mind, it makes it quite obvious that it's going to be easy to pile weight back on once we've finished our fat loss phase, which happens to a lot of people where the assumption comes in that we have to keep our calories super, super low, right? And this is where the reverse diet comes in. So if we bear in mind that our bio bodies biologically want energy, they want calories, they want fat on your body, it makes sense that if we do want to maintain that leaner body weight, we need to be strategic about the way that we add food back in and weight onto our bodies as well. I'm definitely going to cover this in depth in a future podcast, but we've got to bear in mind that dieting is, and I use this phrase uh, tentatively, controlled starvation. And it will be incredibly easy for us to consume excess calories and put weight back on after we are done dieting. We have hunger and satiety hormones called leptin and ghrelin, which are both likely to be out of sync, leading you to feel like not as full, a lot more hungrier. Like remember, your body does not care about your abs. It just cares about getting back to homeostasis. So you have to bear this in mind. And initially, once your body and mind have realized that food is no longer scarce, 
these signals and hormones, they will normalize. And you'll be able to sit at a buffet without having the need to go for 12 plates, right? And it's also recognizing the changes that are gonna happen in the human mind as well. This is gonna have a ginormous impact. So to summarize, your body will need to hold some body fat. And that's something you're gonna have to mentally get your head around. This will largely, largely depend on a lot of your lifestyle factors and your genetics as well. During a fat loss phase, if you want to get leaner, and if you expect that you have a set point, you have to disregard the set point to a degree and grind through. I wanna make that point very, very clear, but it is worth bearing in mind once you've hit your goal and you are trying to get into a place of maintenance. And finally, you'll just want to be mindful when you wrap up your fat loss phase due to the fact that hormones are gonna be out of balance and the theory of the set point as well. But if you are strategic, you can get yourself into a good place without the excess body fat. Tons of the people I we work with have done this very expert and very, very impressively. And the final take-home message here is that if you've increased calories, if you've given yourself maybe three months post-fat loss phase and you feel still don't feel in a great place, go get some blood work done. See where your body stands and you may get some information that helps you get back to your best. So that is today's episode. I feel like I was packed full of information. So I hope there was a lot of valuable takeaways and I would love to hear which specific ones you took. So screenshot this now or screenshot it earlier. You know, you know, scroll back to the area that you were like, okay, this is where the light bulb moment was for me and share on Instagram, Facebook, Instagram stories, especially. It's where I spend a lot of my time and I love, love, love seeing you guys share the message. So that is everything from me. I look forward to speaking with you all next week. Have an amazing week ahead and we will speak very soon. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.